My name is John Balker, and I'm the practice group leader of the government relations practice here at Arendt Fox. On behalf of our DC and policy practice, I am delighted to welcome you to our cocktail hour discussion of what to expect from the 2021 DC Council and also the mayor's agenda. We are delighted to have with us former DC Council member and new Aaron Fox partner, David Grasso. And I'd like to say at the outset that uh, cocktail hour is not just meant as a description of the time for this event. We intended this to be an invitation for you to join us with your favorite cocktail because it also is a celebration to welcome David to the firm. Just a minute about the firm. Aaron Fox was founded in Washington, D.C. in 1942. Although we are now a national firm with offices around the country and business around the globe, we have never forgotten our D.C. roots. The district has been and always will be at the heart of our firm. And our D.C. business and policy practice represents clients in the district with respect to government relations, healthcare, real estate, tax, restaurants, the arts, cannabis, just to name a few. And we are delighted that David will be lending his considerable talents to this work. Over many years, Aaron Fox also has been the home for former government officials who come to practice law and represent clients with the highest ethical standards. We have counted among our colleagues, former senators, members of the House, governors, mayors, attorneys general, and yes, council members. And we know that David will thrive here for years to come. So I hope now that you are settled in with your favorite libation. I know I am. And let me explain how we intend to proceed with this hour. I will ask David questions about the new council and uh, mayoral priorities and what those mean for your business. Joining me in the questioning will be my colleague, Senior Government Relations Director, Oliver Spurgeon. Let me uh, introduce Oliver to you. Oliver is a key member of our government relations practice with a particular focus in healthcare issues. Oliver represents clients before the Congress, the administration, and of course, the district government. Prior to joining Aaron Fox, Oliver was the Deputy Director of Federal Affairs at the National Association of Community Health Centers, the Manager of Government Affairs at the National Recreation and Park Association, and a legislative staffer to Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia, where he covered health policy, tax, education, and other issues. But most importantly for this discussion, Oliver also is a DC guy who is active in nonprofit and political causes dedicated to expanding access, opportunity, and economic advancement for the residents of the District of Columbia. He sits on the board of directors of several important organizations, including the United Planning Organization, the DC Strings Workshop, Historic Anacostia Block Association, and serves as the Legislative Committee Chairman of the District of Columbia Ward 8 Democratic Party. Oliver also resides in Historic Anacostia. So now let me introduce our guest of honor. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome my good friend David Grasso to Aaron Fox and to our event this evening. David comes Aaron Fox after serving with distinction for eight years as an at-large member of the DC Council. During his time in office, David pursued issues with the goal of making D.C. a better city through smart public policy, strong community engagement, and a focus always on racial equity and human rights. His efforts resulted in historic progress and fundamentally changed how our schools prepare students to succeed, how our families balance their work and home lives, and how our government and elections operate more ethically. David served as chair of the Committee on Education for six years and on several other committees during his time on the council, including finance and revenue, human services, transportation, judiciary, 
labor in the workforce, government operations, and of course, the Committee of the Whole. His work on these committees has positioned him to provide strong client support in many important areas, such as education, healthcare, transportation, and of course, economic development. Prior to David's time on the council, he served as vice president of public policy at Care First, uh, chief counsel to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, and staff director of the Council's Committee on Economic Development under council member Sharon Ambrose. This wealth of experience has more than prepared David to represent our clients before the district and the Congress. So the first order of business is to raise a glass with me virtually to welcome David to Aaron Fox. Welcome, David. Thank you, John. Okay, and now to the main event. Oliver and I will begin the questioning, but don't worry, we're not gonna leave you out. Please start thinking about what questions you would like to ask David and drop them into the Q&A at the bottom of the Zoom call. We also have many questions that were submitted before the event, and we're gonna try within this hour to get to as many of these questions as we can. So with that, let's begin. David, I would be absolutely remiss in the wake of last week's horrific events at the Capitol, where we both worked at one point in our careers, not to begin by asking you your thoughts about what occurred, what it means for the District of Columbia, and particularly um, the district's efforts to achieve full democracy and statehood, which has been discussed in, in the wake of those attacks. So if you would begin there, we would appreciate it. Yes, and uh, thank you, John and Oliver, both of you for doing this with me. And uh, thank you to everybody who's joined us in this uh, particular Zoom call. I wish we could do this in person, but this is what we have during this horrible time of COVID-19. The things that happened last week are nothing short of a major tragedy for our country. The reality that people think that it's appropriate to come into our city and try to overthrow the government by attacking this this Capitol building that so many of us worked in and trying to end the electoral process the way that they did, to me, is just unthinkable. And the fact that our president was mixed in the middle of it is also something that many of us are still trying to come to grips with. The fortunate thing is that it's going to be over soon that they, as we're at the culmination of uh, this horrible four years, at least uh, in my opinion, and I think in many people's now, um, that it hasn't done very well for our country as a whole. Uh, it's a tragedy that people lost their lives. It's a tragedy that people were led to believe that there was fraud when the voters, the states, the courts and Congress have all validated that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States in less than a week. I have some hope that comes out of this as I always try to do. I believe the Biden and the Harris administration is positioned very well to begin the healing that our country is desperately in need of. But I also believe, John, that it's going to take an effort from every single one of us. You know, we all have to step up to the plate and try to love our neighbor better than we ever have before, try to embrace difference and try to bring about a more peaceful world. Now, what it's going to do about statehood, I do want to add just one point on that. The District of Columbia has been suffering as jurisdiction that has not been given its full rights as citizens of the United States and as members of this country for over 200 years. Congressman Norton has fought just so hard for every single one of us. And I think finally we are on the precipice of something amazing that can happen within the next several years. With the fact that Congress is now controlled by the Democrats, the White House is controlled by a Democrat, we have a plan in place, as you well know, John, to bring statehood to the District of Columbia. Is that gonna solve all of our problems? Certainly not. 
but will it put us in a better position to work to make this city the greatest city that it can be? Absolutely. With two senators, with control over our courts, with the financial ability to actually move our city forward, I think you will see a tremendous change for our city. And I look forward to that day when we can become the Douglas Commonwealth. Yeah. And there's also a law enforcement component to this, too. I mean, as you know, um, you know, the mayor couldn't call up the National Guard on her own. There's a provision in the Home Rule Act that gives the president of the United States the authority um, to take over the Metropolitan Police Department. I was on a call with uh, with Chief Conti earlier today where I asked him about these things. And, you know, the mayor and the chief have been unequivocal that this really hamstrings the mayor and her ability at moments like this to be able to protect our citizens. I, I assume you agree that those things should go the way of the dinosaur. Well, the challenge, I think, has been, you know, throughout the past year with the calls for racial justice and the protests there as well, where the Trump administration has threatened to take over MPD, threatened to bring in outside forces. And uh, that has done nothing but so fear. And, and it really is unfortunate that we're in that position. But you're right. Uh, if the city was a state, we could control our own National Guard and we could make the decisions that best protect the residents of the District of Columbia. Uh, the, the most tragic thing probably from last week, though, was, in my opinion, the way that the really the insurrection unfolded into the Capitol building put a hold on the process of our uh, elected officials and what they were trying to do to validate and certify the Electoral College's votes. And uh, that, to me, is something that should never happen again. That is a place that I believe is sacred and should be protected. And we should make sure that we do into the future. And it must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean. I was there as a staffer on 9-11. You know, I was there during at least, you know, two active shooting events, which were far away from where I was in the complex. But I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be hiding behind barricaded door, you know, with folks, you know, banging on that door and uh, and, and the long lasting trauma, you know, it's going to cause folks and young staffers who had to endure that. And I suspect that you probably have a view, too, about, uh, you know, the disparate treatment that's been called out here by the way these rioters were treated. Compare that to the way, for example, peaceful protesters were treated, you know, in Lafayette Park in front of St. John's Church. Yeah, it's not anything new in our society that we uh, treat our black residents different than white residents when it comes to police enforcement. This is just an exaggeration of it. And in fact, the reality is that this has been happening in our country for many, many years. And in this city, it has been exaggerated ever since Trump has been in office. And it is whether it's our our black generational residents or our new immigrant residents, this administration has attacked them all. And um, is this is no different here uh, to watch those folks walk right into the Capitol building without much. Uh, I mean, obviously, many of these Capitol Police tried hard. They've tried their best to stop them. Obviously, we saw some really great examples of heroism there and somebody did lose his life, which is the ultimate tragedy. But at the same time, it, it, there's rumors that there was people assisting these guys to get in there and do this harm. There may even been some members of Congress that did it. It is yeah. honestly uh, unthinkable and, and, it's, and it's awful. Thank you for those comments, David. I know this is on uh, a lot of folks' mind and thought that... Uh, you know, it'd be a thing to begin there and get your views on that. But now I want to pivot a little bit to talk a little bit first about you. And I thought I'd ask you what you regard as your most important achievements 
as a council member. And now that you've made this big shift, um, you know, you've been in private practice in a sense before you worked in the healthcare sector as an executive for a healthcare company before you uh, joined the council. But how does it feel in private practice? And what do you hope to be focusing on now that uh, you're no longer in government? I spent eight years as an elected official, but you know I spent nearly 20 years as a public servant uh, serving the people of the District of Columbia. And I'm proud of many of the things that we were able to accomplish as I was a council member. You know that I focused almost exclusively on education. For me, this is the one area where I believe as a city, we have to continue to improve and we have to continue to do everything we can to eliminate the reality that there are two different education systems in our city. And so one of the particular successes that I had that I'm most proud of is the reform of the way that we do school discipline in the District of Columbia. And so we know that disproportionately suspensions and expulsions affect black and brown students more than white students. And we knew that we had to do something to eliminate that. And with the help of my amazing staff, we were able to pass a law. It took several years to do it that essentially bans suspensions and expulsions in the District of Columbia. Now, what this will do is put, I think, every student in a better position to succeed in school, to give every student an opportunity to reach their full potential. Another area that I'm incredibly proud of, obviously, is uh, ethics and the political reform that we're able to do. We passed a bill that publicly financed campaigns to make more elections accessible to everyday residents. We also did a tremendous amount of work in the arts and humanities, which I'm very proud of, creating an opportunity for dedicated funding for the first time in the District of Columbia. And I I would be remiss to not bring up the work that I've done on mental health services in our city. I am very proud of the fact that I was one of myself and Vincent Gray created the school-based mental health task force, which tries to expand mental health services to our students in the school buildings and ultimately out into the community. And, you know, finally, I want to note that I'm incredibly proud of the accomplishment to give paid leave to every single worker in the District of Columbia. We now have a universal paid leave program. It was a big lift. It is revolutionary in this country, although not in the rest of the world. And I'm proud that we got that done. I'm a little bit, I should say, excited and nervous to go into the private sector, but I feel great that I have joined such an amazing firm. Aaron Fox was, to me, the best place that I could go because of its commitment to the city, because of its roots in the city. And now that I've been here for 10 days or so. I've gotten to meet so many wonderful people that work here, and it has only more solidified the choice that I made to come here. And I had many options. And in the long run, to be a part of the government relations practice at Aaron Fox means that I can continue to stay involved in the issues that I care so much about here in our great city. I'm going to continue to work on education. I'm going to continue to work on public health, whether it's physical or mental health issues. I want to continue to work on economic development projects, which I've done so much of in the city and ultimately continue to be engaged in the complete legalization, tax and regulation of cannabis. This has too often been used as a tool or a weapon against poor communities and the war on drugs is a failure and we know it. And I'm proud to say that I work for a firm that supports the efforts to try to undo the harm that was done in the war on drugs. So I could go on and on about all the things that I feel like I accomplished and I'm sure I've missed some. Um, I do want to note one program that I know will continue and I had good fortune of being the chair of the committee that also included public libraries. And we renovated Martin Luther King Jr. Library. We did many other of the branch libraries as well. We have several more in the hopper to be done in the next 
next few years. There's one program there that I'm incredibly proud of, and everyone knows it because I talk about it all the time, but it is the Oral History Project. I created an oral history project with the support of the libraries, Humanities DC, and others. And frankly, I think that opportunity with that program is to collect the stories of all of the wonderful people that come and live here and work here and pass through here so that we can begin to understand the fabric of our society and respect it and understand it for the future. Uh, And that will be housed at the new Martin Luther King Library. So I'm excited. People have access to go listen to these stories and engage with them. And I think there's really great value in that. That's great. And and of course, one of the many tragedies that has come out of this pandemic is that folks can't go and see this magnificent library that you and so many others work so hard on. So something to look forward to and God willing, you know, we make it out of this. Oliver, I know you have some questions for David. Sure. Thanks, John. So David, I'm really excited that you've decided to join us here at Aaron Fox. Uh, you're a longtime Washingtonian and a longtime leader in the district. So you better than probably anyone on this call know the ins and outs of governments and what's happening around the district. It's a time of tremendous change. And so I'm interested to get your thoughts about what are the most important issues facing the city? I know that the homicide rate was high last year. The rainy day funds dropped a bit. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges, but it'd be great if you could give us your thoughts about some of the most important issues we're facing today. Oliver, I'm excited to join you and, and certainly uh, ready to get to work here in the firm with both of you. You know, there are a lot of important issues facing the city and, and none more important right now than trying to get past this horrible pandemic. The pandemic has wreaked havoc across the country and no more so than here in the District of Columbia. And the fact is, there's a lot of issues that are attached to this. You know, how do we revitalize our economy? How do we get out of that hole? How do we make sure that everyone who needs to have access to a vaccination has And that would be everybody. So how do we make that happen? And I think also we have to then go back and simultaneously work on some of the other very pressing matters like education. I don't think we can just say we've done it with education. We know that there are huge achievement gaps between black and white students in the city that need to be closed and need to be done quickly. To do that, we need to continue to support mental health services and working with teachers and working with schools to make sure that everyone is given that fair chance at success. I think also we have to look at the questions around housing. The question of affordable housing, the question of how do we get past the pandemic when it comes to the ban on evictions? Do we just all of a sudden say everyone's got to jump in and start paying all the back pay that they owe? How do we support the landlords and the property owners at the same time? That is a thorny issue that is not going to be easily resolved. And then I think we have to address the health disparities that are in our city. And we've done a big job here by creating a health system east of the river that never existed before. It's not been built yet. We have to double down on those efforts and make sure it gets done. Um, with that comes a strong education effort around healthcare to get people to understand the value of a primary care practitioner of not going into a hospital if they don't need to. And we have to then embrace the fact that we are one city again. And then finally, I think we have to jump in with two feet on trying to expand economic development opportunities because what that will bring us is greater density, which will bring us more affordable housing, which I think is something that we've focused on in the past, but we haven't quite followed through on. There are major projects still in the hopper to get done. Uh, and that's something the city can do to try to bring back the businesses, try to bring back the economy, but also address the housing questions that we have. For sure. All very good points. So, as you know, the pandemic continues and the district has been touched like so many other states around the country. You and I had a chance to chat with congressional staff about some of their priorities for this next congressional package and how we make the district whole. And the president slated to put forth his package tonight uh, 
to fund the COVID response. Uh, that's likely to focus on testing and tracing and pushing out vaccine dollars. So can you talk to us about what the city and the district is going to have to do in the coming weeks and months to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? I want to start by saying I think the city has done a very good job. I think that Dr. Nesbitt has led the team and has done a tremendous job to try to stay in front of a very difficult moving target. This is not an easy thing to address. On top of that, we have done it while we've been shorted significant money from the federal government. Now, what I mean by shorted, every other jurisdiction in the country got a certain amount of money per population. The District of Columbia was shorted $750 million in those efforts. So how can we get that money back? Oliver, you mentioned we were able to meet with some staff and we think that it might actually happen. They think that there's going to be a priority that the district will be made whole. Now, what do we have to do then? Now, say we get the money. The fact of the matter is they have to continue to make an effort on education for prevention. People need to continue to embrace wearing masks, social distancing, not going out if you don't have to, things of that nature. And then I think we have to expand the opportunity for vaccinations. So I know there's been a big debate in the city, but the reality is right now, vaccinations are really limited in D.C., I don't even think we've gotten over 10,000 yet. How do we then expand that with more money? And I think my hope is that with a new administration in the White House, with a Congress that's more understanding of the District of Columbia and the needs that we have, the mayor will have more resources at her disposal to get more vaccinations on the street. And that is important. I don't think there's another way to do it. And then finally, with that comes the responsibility to do a better job educating folks on the value of getting vaccinated and that there is a legitimate lack of trust in our Black communities when it comes to being vaccinated. And that's something we have to overcome. It's not something we can ignore or forget about. We have to go in and hit it head on. And maybe this government-run program this time, when we're doing the vaccinations with truth and with transparency and openness, we can earn back some of the trust that we've lost over the years and put people in a better position for the future when we're going to need to do this again and when more public health crises come before us. So it's a big, uh, it's a big undertaking, Oliver, but I think it can be done. And I'm confident the mayor is doing a good job. And just staying on COVID and the district's COVID response, our economy has been hit so hard by the pandemic over these past uh, number of months from arts to education to healthcare to travel and tourism. Many silos of the economy have just been touched by the pandemic. As we think about having to rebuild and making sure that both the top and the bottom are able to resurge after the pandemic, what steps is the district going to have to take to repair the economy following COVID? You know, this is something that I think we're going to learn as we move through the budget process, uh, exactly what steps the district is going to take. I believe that the best approach here is to invest in our communities. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the government investing dollars, whether at first trying to make sure people are unemployed, don't continue to fall through the safety net, but are picked up and given the resources they need to survive. And then moving forward, we need to encourage businesses to open back up as soon as they can. And what does that take? That's going to take a public investment. We need to invest in business owners. We need to invest in the property owners. We need to invest in our communities to create new businesses so that we can get people back to work. And, um, you know, it's not a simple thing to undertake, but the fact is we can use our schools, we can use our higher education and uh, you know all of our universities and colleges to bring back to the table some opportunities for people to really thrive in the city. People mostly want to work. They want to engage in the economy. And so how do we give them the opportunity to do that? Some may need to be retrained 
because maybe their job is no longer available. Others, we just need to pick up the economy. Restaurants and bars are a great example, right? For many years, we've depended on the sales tax from hotels, restaurants, and bars. It's essentially our tourism tax and it's something that we have lost during the pandemic. So what do we do from an economic perspective? I think you give them incentives to rebuild and reopen. And and the mayor has done that with the limited resources that she has. But how do we do that in a way, if we get more money that double down, doubles down on that effort? And again, I think it's very important for us to remember that everyday workers need support and they need a lot of support to survive, whether it's by paying their rent or giving them unemployment insurance payments or whatever. That is really important. We also need to remember that to get people back on their feet, we have to create jobs. And in order to create jobs, we have to support the business community. And that means lifting up businesses, giving them the support they need to survive and thrive, and also making sure that we don't just put a bunch of buildings under by not supporting the owners of those buildings. It's one thing to say, let's support the business. But if that business pays rent to somebody, that person that they're paying rent to depends on that rent to pay the mortgage on the property that they own. So all of this is connected. And I think as a city, we need to understand that. And, you know, I have to say, we've been through this before in the District of Columbia. And I was there when revitalization was happening in our great city, led by Mayor Williams. And I think we can take a lot of lessons from them. I think we also are in a better position than many other cities. We can still go to the market and borrow money if we need to because we have reserve funds. And I think there's value in taking that approach. And so dump money back into the community, do it as quickly as we can. And obviously, we have to get this city open again as fast as possible. I'm going to turn it back over to my colleague, John, to ask a number of questions now. John? Great. Thanks, Oliver. So, David, I'm going to ask you to be a bit of a prognosticator now, you know, now that you are uh, looking uh, in to the council rather than inside looking out, but with obviously an amazing amount of experience over uh, a number of eight, in fact, uh, budget cycles as a council member. So, let me ask you with, you know, the answers that you just gave, Oliver, sort of as a context for this. As you know, you know, the budget process begins with the performance oversight hearings where all the agencies come and testify about the the previous year's budget, right, and what they've accomplished. And then it's followed by a series of hearings where they all come and testify with respect to the new budget the mayor's put forward. So what do you think this year, particularly, you know, with, with the COVID crisis still raging, the Congress not giving the district the money that it deserves. What do you think the the agencies are going to tell the council in this performance oversight process? And then how is the council going to address, you know, these important issues, many of which that you've named, you know, COVID crisis, education, equity, public safety, tax policy through the budget process? Give, Give us sort of your preview as to how you think this is going to go this year, because many of the folks on the call and many of our clients pay very close attention to the district's budget process. Um, well, John, you know, the fact is, is that the performance oversight hearings last year happened before the shutdown. So um, this will be the first time that we'll have the agency heads before the council in performance oversight hearings when they can talk about the experience that they've had because of COVID-19. So I think a lot of the focus in the performance hearings is going to be on the impact of the pandemic on their operations. You know, the virtual working environment, the right. providing service. That will clearly be the overarching issue. It's got to be. I mean, I don't see how else it won't be. And and it'll be very interesting. I mean, especially I'm looking forward to watching the, the oversight hearings of the schools, you know, DCPS. What have their efforts really resulted in? Now, they have had, we've had, you know, I led a couple of hearings last fall with the chairman on 
kind of what the status quo was. But here we are in the performance hearing where they're going to be prepared with data. And I'm going to be curious to see how far behind our students are. Yeah. Uh, have they had a major impact from trying to learn at home? Um, and if so, what are, what's going to happen with that? What's the answer? Um, and how are we going to resolve? David, can they assess the mental, the mental health of these kids too? I mean, I know there's going to be data around the loss of learning, but I know mental health supports are so important to you. Um, how are they going to be able to assess, you know, the trauma that these kids are, are dealing with over and above the trauma they're already dealing with, perhaps in their home environments as a result of the pandemic? I believe that they are focused on this and that they are trying to gather the data and trying to understand where students are when it comes to the adversity that they're experiencing with the pandemic. Uh, it's very hard because you're you know not in touch. But the fact is, I know that DCPS and the charters are still continuing with their school based mental health programs. They still have their nonprofit support network, talking with families, engaging with families. It's often like this on a Zoom call, which is not perfect. But I think they will ultimately be able to understand, but probably not as as perfectly as they will when students return to school. And, you know, this is one of the biggest challenges. This has added more trauma and adversity to students and families' lives than was before. And, and we thought we already had a pretty significant problem. So this is going to be a challenge that I think we'll see some evidence of in the performance oversight hearings. The budget process then is going to be entirely dependent on whether or not we get the money that will come back to us from the federal government, both the makeup money and any new money. Uh, if that money comes down before the budget gets sent to the council, then maybe the CFO and the mayor, the chief financial officer and the mayor can build that into the new budget. And that will, I think, give everybody a little bit more opportunity to fund some of the priorities that are important to them. If that does happen, I think it will. Then I think you'll see the mayor continue to support her education priorities. She has been a strong supporter of funding education. I think she will support more affordable housing opportunities. This is above and beyond all the pandemic response that she, I think, has to, to fund. And, and you'll see, I think, a strong level of support for trying to expand mental health services in schools as well. I think that's something that she has shown a commitment to. But, you know, there's a big gap to fill. You know, even though the CFO's uh, revenue estimate came out last month saying that it wasn't necessarily as bad as we thought it was going to be. But we're still talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. not, and, and we're running not a billion dollars. Funds. You know, these rainy day right. funds get drained up and, and that's a challenge. It's helped a little bit that we've been able to have a sales tax this year on internet purchases which is fairly new in the country. But the the challenge I think we had before us is filling that gap. And then I think what you'll see is a move away from budgeted items that need to have funding that haven't been funded. We have a lot of those kinds of items on the agenda that are big ticket items that were not funded but have been passed by the council. Uh, and hopefully you'll see a commitment towards doing things that we can actually accomplish uh, in this budget cycle. And of course, it takes uh, two to tango. It takes both the mayor and the council to get uh, legislation enacted and to get priorities uh, funded and, and addressed. So, Oliver, I know you want to ask David a little bit about the mayor's priorities. Of course. You know, he definitely touched on a few of her priorities that she may focus on for the coming session. Economic development, housing, and so many other critical issues are always on my mind. You know, we talk about trying to grow the middle class, make sure we can ensure that people can grab that next rung on the economic ladder. Do you expect that those will continue to be priorities for her as we go forward? 
I don't think she's reached her goals yet in those areas, especially the creation of affordable housing. I know she has specific goals there. I think she'll continue to try to push for that. And I think she'll do it through the style that she's always done it, which is trying to support development companies to build certain levels of affordability within the projects that she also funds. So I think you'll continue to see that, Oliver. I think the question on economic development for me is broader than just housing, though. It also goes towards businesses and supporting the business community and building out again. And that's in the pandemic response for me. If, if you can see that as filling the hole, getting us back to where we were pre-COVID, I think that's going to take a number of years to accomplish. And I think she's going to have to put a big part of her budget towards that effort. Um, I would also love to see her, as I mentioned briefly, continue to back our education efforts. You know, a, a 3%, 4% increase to this uh, school-based funding uh, formula makes a lot of sense to me. Trying to make sure that all of our schools continue to be modernized is important. Many, many, many of them have, but there's still a ways to go there. And I noticed there was a question that was sent before the meeting about the 12% cap on borrowing and the impact that might have. Obviously, it does. I mean, if you have a smaller overall budget, then you can't borrow as much under that cap. We've had growth in our budget every single year. So you've been able to grow with that, the, the borrowing that we do. And that will impact our school buildings being modernized. It'll impact our, our libraries being finished, which is a priority for me. It'll impact our infrastructure projects. A lot of this just depends on how, how much the federal government really steps up and, and supports us. And we'll get a little glimpse of that tonight, as you uh, said, Oliver, from uh, the president-elect's uh, speech tonight. That's right. So once again, asking you to dust off your crystal ball and think about what we may see at the end of the year. I'm always curious how the council and the mayor come together to really find solutions to the big problems facing the district. Thinking forward to the end of the year, what do you think the chief accomplishments of the mayor and council will be as they work together to really try and solve some of the issues facing the district? Well, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record, but I do believe that they're going to have to come together and unite on their efforts around the re response to this pandemic. And, they, and they've done that to a certain extent. And I've been proud to be a part of that when I was on the council. And I think that will continue to force folks to work together to try to get out of this uh, this challenging time. Um, I think that as a, as a unity approach, I think they've always supported education. I think there's been value in that. I think they will support, um, you know, there was major calls for and will continue to be major calls for support for our restaurants and bars and, and our tourism approach, the hotel industry. Um, and you'll see that as well. But it is not uh, something that I think I really wanted to bring up, but I do think there'll be challenges in the criminal justice section again. You know, you're going to have the appointment of uh, the new chief. You're going to have to see where the funding goes on that and whether or not there's good reform that comes out of the police reform commission. If there is a strong effort there with great transparency. I think you might see the council and the mayor unite in those efforts. Um, it's just going to be a challenge to see where it comes all out uh, in the long run. That's fantastic. You mentioned a number of issues, uh, talking about advocacy, justice, education. So much of this is done when folks engage the council and engage the mayor and make their voices heard in the district. We've got so many groups here, arts advocates, business owners, folks running hotels, in the entertainment and restaurant industry, what's the best way and how can advocates really influence the process and engage the mayor and the council and make their voices heard going forward? 
Well, it's become, I think, harder and harder to do that. You know, it used to be that you could pop down and meet with the council, you know, get meetings with folks, uh, ask them out for lunch, et cetera. And this is just not possible now. So people had to reinvent the way they do advocacy. And I can't stress, though, how important it is. And so people need to still sign up for the performance hearings and do it as best they can over the Internet like this. They have to continue to send emails, try to set up meetings one on one with staff and with members. Uh, it's incredibly important to do that. But I I think that you have a council down there that is willing to engage, willing to listen and to support the advocacy community, whether it's the business community, the advocates fighting for social justice or other matters. There always is an ear down there for people to get heard by. And and this is important that they continue to do that. The challenge will be establishing relationships with these staff and these members because of COVID, but I don't think it's insurmountable. It can be done. One of the good things about the district is that our leaders are always very accessible and open to hearing thoughts and comments. And so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to John for a few more questions. Thanks, Oliver. So before we turn to questions from the audience, I do want to ask you, David, about um, the new council members. And uh, these new council members, of course, are are beginning in this very unusual uh, world that we're now in, where they have to engage their constituents in new ways and, you know, over Zoom and and through the internet in the ways that you described. But I wanted to ask you about these new members. Of course, the elections of Christina Henderson, who of course worked for you, Janice Lewis-George in Ward 4, Brooke Pinto in Ward 2, has had a historic impact on the council, I think, that we have a majority Black council and a majority female council, which is pretty extraordinary. And so, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are about that, about these new members themselves, and uh, and to focus maybe on some of the concerns that we've been hearing, you know, from some in the district saying that these council members may pull the council too far to the left, um, and will they be able to interact, you know, with the business community, and will they be able to listen to the business community on things like you know, regulations and and policies that affect businesses, particularly as businesses are trying to, you know, emerge uh, from the pandemic. So, so why don't you reflect on that a little bit? Thank you. I, I am incredibly excited about the new council. I think it is a wonderful moment in our time uh, that uh, these three women have joined the council and made it a majority black and majority female council for the first time in many years. I think there's great value in that because I think they will bring a different perspective. They will bring a really valuable perspective to policymaking um, that is needed on the council. And so there's real value in that. I think uh, you're going to find that they're very open and willing to listen and engage. And I certainly have found that with all three of them. Um, You know, there are, I think, some in the community that are worried about it being now too heavily weighted towards more liberal or left ideals. Uh, I don't think that's the case. And I don't think people have to worry. These are three very smart women who are going to, I think, think critically, understand the issues and try their best to be measured in their response. Now, um, Janice Lewis-George from Ward 4 is the one that has been most associated with the left. And I think that's because she was supported by the unions. She was lifted up by them and and her election. Um, And so she may still lean that way. But I wouldn't say that about Councilmember Pinto or Christina Henderson. Both of them, you know, are most likely to be more in the middle. They have made those statements over 
and over again in their elections, in their statements opening up this session, they seem to be the most reasonable to not be leaning one way or the other. Um, I've seen Councilmember Pinto in the time I was with her on the council take votes that were very hard one way or the other, but never was uh, put into one particular box. And I think there's great value in that. You know, in the end, the voters uh, chose to make a change. And I love that about our great city. The voters in the city are critical thinkers. They know that there's value in looking at who the candidates are and picking the best candidate. I'm obviously most proud of Christina Anderson's race. Um, Christina uh, and I had the opportunity to work together on the council. And I know that she's going to do an amazing job and continue to have a thoughtful approach to policymaking. So um, I'm not worried about it one bit. I think that the council is going to be better than it's ever been. I have a lot of love and respect for everybody down there, both the staff and the members, and I'm sure that they will be successful in making this city the greatest city in the world. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, Christina's election was pretty extraordinary. I mean, you endorsed her very early on, obviously, as someone that you wanted to be your successor in many ways to carry on the good work that, that you had done in the council, but also you know, to um, to engage in her own policies. And uh, she wanted a very crowded field. Pretty amazing. And uh, I think it's going to be exciting to watch how all three of these council members really come into their own. Um, yeah, and, you know, John, I'll, I'll just add to that. The You know, there was another question I saw online that people were worried about the committee makeup and, you know, all of the issues that go right. with the operations of the council. You know, the fact is that, you know, everybody's going to have to take each issue as it comes before them. And the, the pandemic is going to really dictate a lot of what we can do in the next year. But the fact is that everyone, I think, up there has the capacity to be a good critical thinker, understand the issues and make the best decisions. The chairman did decide to put education in the committee of the whole. I was personally not opposed to that. I've said that publicly. I think he has been with me as a partner in education policy for the past two years. And I think he will do a great job in the full committee handling those matters. I think uh, the there were some major changes on the housing committee that people noted. Um, that just, I think, means we have a little more work to do as advocates in that area to make sure the new council members on the housing committee understand the issues in the same way that you wanted uh, your favorite council member to be on the committee. And that's just a challenge. And you also have, you know, the reality that the Committee on Finance and Revenue did not get reconstituted. So Councilmember McDuffie, my council member in Ward 5, is in charge of both the economic development and the financial revenue, the, the finance and revenue matters, which I think is a, a, a it's a big lift, but we've had that done before. That was uh, the way that it was done when I first started working on the council years ago. And so I know he's up for the task. He's been doing it for almost a year now and, and done a great job. So I think people should be more worried about the issues they want to get addressed, go down there with an open mind. And the only request I'll make to people going down there is that they try to be nice. You know, it's a time period in our country and in our city where you often lose that angle and you get a lot more done with sugar, in my opinion. And I've gotten a lot of criticism for that approach, but I still believe it with all my heart that the way you get stuff done is you're kind to people, you respect them, and they'll show you the same back to you and you can get more done. Amen to that. All right. So we have a couple of questions in the chat, uh, in the Q&A rather, and uh, I hope that uh, folks start thinking about uh, questions that they may want to ask in the Q&A. And I'll turn it over to Oliver to start looking at those questions and asking David his response. So we've touched on so many issues today, housing, economic development, jobs and justice and cannabis. So many of these are important to the district, but it feels like in Wards 7 and Wards 8 particularly feel these even so more compared to those who live across the river. 
And we got a question from the audience asking how the new members of the council will work with community-based organizations east of the river and also how that partnership will kind of help grow and improve the lives of folks in Ward 7 and Ward 8. Well, I think there's there's great opportunity to do that. It's a little bit harder when you can't actually go out there in person and do it. I think it's still important for the council members to take the time to go into the community, practicing social distancing, wearing masks, and get to be known and know people in the community. And you can do that most effectively by partnering with these CBOs, with these community-based organizations, because they have the credibility in the community to get you out to meet the right people. And, you know, I found that to be very helpful when I was a council member. And I think it's important that people continue to embrace that effort. And, and what does that take? Sometimes it's official where you go and you actually have a hearing in Ward 7 and 8. Sometimes it's a lot official where you go to an event, you go to a community day, you go out and engage with them informally. Uh, and I think there's real value in doing that. So all those efforts are better enhanced when you have credible messengers going out with you. And those are the community organizations that I think will be most beneficial to that effort. So uh, one of the questioners in the Q&A is taking us to task a little bit here, and I think maybe rightly so, um, that we've talked about a whole bunch of issues that are important, very important, but we've left out a whopper, which is climate change. And I know that's something that we're focusing on a lot here at the firm and particularly in our government relations practice, particularly as President Biden comes in, who is someone who is likely to focus on climate change. But David, why don't you tell us your thoughts a little bit about how the city should be approaching climate change and energy legislation? I know that uh, the city has passed some pretty ambitious goals already, but uh, you know, what more can the city do to combat one of the greatest issues, if not the greatest issue of our time, which is uh, what's happening to the planet? Well, I'm glad that was brought up. And Mark, thank you for bringing that up and bringing it to our attention. You know, for me, it's one of the great priorities that I've had, not just uh, in my life. And it starts, I think, in the very small efforts that we can make to encourage people to take public transportation, to install solar when it's possible in their house, to and make sure their land is permeable and not impermeable, and to ensure that they are supporting policies that actually create these opportunities for people that can't afford them. So we have a renewable energy credit program that actually pays people to put solar up. We also have low-income programs that actually pay for the solar to be going on people's houses. I think there's value in making sure that we continue to speak out in this city for the things that care to us, like trying to reduce the dependence on carbon, trying to encourage people to find alternative modes of transportation, to not blast the air conditioning all day long, but to figure out how to reduce their energy consumption. I'm very excited to see what the Biden-Harris administration has done by elevating this to a top priority as a cabinet-level position with John Kerry is going to be filling. That, to me, shows a real commitment. We've spent the last four years, I think, going backwards, leaving the Paris Climate Accords, not engaging in true climate reform that we need to do. And frankly, this is not something we have a choice about, guys. This is something that if we don't do this, we will not survive. And that, to me, is motivation enough for us to all do our part. In fact, my wife and I just installed solar on our house last year. We did it through the solar co-op here in D.C., and it was a wonderful experience. And, you know, we've reduced our energy consumption as well. So everyone has a role to play, and I hope that our policymakers, including uh, Councilmember Mary Che, who's taking the lead on these issues, will continue to fight for them for many years to come. And did I just see that the, the district's own... Jeff Marudian of DDOT is going to be in the administration working on these issues as a special advisor to the president on climate and science, which is very exciting. 
good to have him there. It's always good to have local guys go up into the administration for sure. You bet. Oliver, you got another question from the crowd? I do. I do. So we've got a question about cannabis reform. For years, the district's really been at the forefront of trying to manage and tax and regulate dispensing of cannabis uh, within the city. And yet members of Congress have kind of set foot and put their thumb on the scales when we've tried to do so. One of the questions from the audience is how you think now that we've got a Democratic House and Democratic Senate and a Democratic president, how you think the district may try and reform and advance its cannabis uh, regime here? Well, I mean, the opportunity, I think, is there for the table. You know, we finally have an administration in Congress that hopefully will take that rider off of our budget. Uh, obviously, that can't happen until the end of the year because of the budget process and the timing on everything. But I am sure that once that rider comes off, that the mayor and the council are going to move very quickly to pass a tax and regulate bill in the District of Columbia and stand up a program that eliminates the war on drugs when it comes to marijuana in our city. Um, you know, I introduced tax and regulate bill every two years, starting in 2013. Uh, Andy Harris put a hold on it, the congressman from Maryland, and we've never been able to get it off. But we have precedent for getting riders off. And I just want folks to, to know this. When I worked for Congressman Norton, the Democrats had control of the House and the Senate. And uh, Jose Serrano, the great congressman from New York, understood the plight of the people of the District of Columbia because he was from a Puerto Rican family. And he took the riders off. And that's how we got medical marijuana in the District of Columbia. We had passed a referendum to pass medical marijuana in 1998 or 99. And then it was also a hold on it for 10 plus years. Um, when the Congress took the hold off, uh, Council Member Tanya at the time was uh, head of the Committee on Health, moved very quickly to implement a program. And, and we now have a robust medical marijuana program. I think we'll see that happen. Um, you see the mayor starting to do a few things to make it happen quicker. She moved the authority of medical marijuana from the Department of Health over to the Alcohol Beverage Regulatory Administration. And both in the law that she is supporting and the one that I introduced, we both agreed that you would put it there as better regulatory body. So I think we are in for better times when it comes to ending the war on drugs in that regard. And my hope is that we can do it very quickly. Um, I know that my colleagues are ready to get it done. And, and frankly, to build some of these budget gaps, you know, um, this is uh, quite a bit of money that can come into the city's uh, but, uh, bottom line, and, yeah. um, and we should make that happen. So, David, a couple of folks um, submitted questions about uh, workforce development. Uh, for example, what focus might the mayor or members have on workforce training programs or assistance for residents trying to reenter work, upskill, or obtain credentials? I know you've given a lot of thought to this, so... What do you say to that question? Well, you know, the best part about that is that we have a system in place. We have these amazing charter schools that we support that are for adults who are transitioning from one job to another who want to get trained in something different than where they currently are. This is an opportunity for us to double down on our investment there, continue to pay for these efforts, and then also enhance other work that's being done on work training programs through the WIC, the Workforce Investment Council, where we have businesses partnering with the employer community, the folks that are trying to do the trainings through DOES and others, um, the more money we invest, the better return we'll get on it. Um, and I think there's great value in doing that. Oliver, you got another question? So I'm on the board of DC Strings. It's a music education nonprofit here that performs all around the district. One of the special things about DC is that there's dedicated funding for the arts from the Kennedy Center to local organizations like DC Strings. There's a commitment really making sure that the creative economy flourishes here in the district. And so I'm curious if you see any changes to that dedicated funding going forward. 
Well, I sure hope not, man. I worked my butt off to make that happen. And, uh, you know, I, I really am proud of that effort. And I and I think a lot of credit goes to Chairman Mendelson for getting it over the finish line a couple of years ago and continuing to stick with it. The other component to that is an independent commission on arts and humanities, and we also were able to accomplish that. So uh, my understanding is there may be some changes a little bit to the way the money gets distributed, which is a highly appropriate. I support that. Uh, I just think the dedicated funding should be there to stay for the long haul. We know there's good investment in this, not just because it brings culture to our city through the arts and humanities, but because it also builds our economy. This is an economic engine for our city. Having people go to the theater, having people engage in the arts is something that has generated a lot of income for our city. And and many people would know that I support the arts, know that I do it for many reasons, but most importantly, because I believe it's a vital part of our economy and a vital part of our city. And so I love the organization that you're uh, on the board of, Oliver. I've met with them many times and they bring what I believe is good quality quality programming into the communities that don't normally have that. And um, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, we have reached the end of our hour. I want to thank all of you for joining us this evening to welcome David uh, to Aaron Fox to hear his views on the new council and the mayor's agenda um, and a bunch of other stuff we were able to talk about uh, tonight. And I want to thank uh, uh, David for his participation in this forum. I want to thank Oliver for his excellent questions and uh, to ask all of you uh, to please don't hesitate to contact us here at Aaron Fox if we can ever assist you in any way. So thank you all for participating. Uh, Stay safe and have a good night. Thank you, everybody.